Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Hi, good Wednesday morning. Savannah's in D.C. after last night's State of the Union address. Hey, SG. Hi, Hoda. President Biden delivering his message to Congress and the American people. It's February 8th. This is today. The people of this nation are strong. The State of the Union is strong. President Biden addresses the nation and a divided Congress, urging the parties to come together to finish the job in a boisterous House chamber. I'm glad. We'll break it all down. The reaction, the fallout, and the potential impact on the 2024 race. Breaking overnight, miracle rescues. Survivors, including a newborn baby, pulled from the rubble in Turkey and Syria. Tiny glimmers of hope amidst an unfathomable human catastrophe. The death toll now soaring over 11,000. The desperate race to reach the hardest hit areas just ahead. Building their case, prosecutors call friends and colleagues of Alec Murdoch to the stand at his double murder trial, painting a picture of a man desperate to conceal alleged financial crimes. All of that was on the cusp of being uncovered, was it not? Yes. A live report from the courthouse straight ahead. Midair scare, a United flight forced to make an emergency landing after a battery catches fire in the cabin. Several passengers injured will have the very latest. Those stories, plus from Friday Night Lights to Super Bowl stardom, how the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes and the Eagles, Jalen Hurts are embracing their historic roles and their Texas ties in the big game. Today, Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. From NBC News, this is Today with Savannah Guthrie, live from Washington, D.C. and Hoda Kotb, live from Studio 1A in Rockefeller Plaza. And hi, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to you today on a Wednesday morning. Hoda's holding it down in New York. I'm here in Washington where the president delivered what was a spirited State of the Union last night, defending his record and making an appeal for bipartisan unity, but also sparring with several Republicans in the chamber, vocal with their opposition to some of the president's words. We're going to break it down, the major takeaways. Let's get it started this morning with NBC's chief White House correspondent, Peter Alexander. Hi, Peter. Good morning. Hey, Savannah, good morning. White House aides here could not be happier about the way things went last night in their eyes, capturing the contrast between a president who's energized but serious and Republicans who, despite being warned by their leaders to behave, appeared at times unserious and angry. For more than 70 minutes, President Biden seemed to take joy in jousting with his loudest critics as he delivered a State of the Union address focused on finishing the job. Entering a House chamber now run by Republicans, President Biden extending his hand to the new Speaker Kevin McCarthy before confronting Republican heckling head-on, tangling over the fate of Social Security and Medicare. The president taking aim at an idea floated by just a few Republicans. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority the comment drawing outrage and boos, including from GOP firebrand Marjorie Taylor Greene. But then, with a smile, the president turning the tables, appearing to get Republicans on board with his position to protect the popular programs. Stand up and show them. We'll not cut Social 
Security. We will not cut Medicare. So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be spiked. At several points when things got spicy, McCarthy was seen trying to shush his boisterous members. Like this moment about the drug crisis, when the president mourned 70,000 Americans killed by fentanyl each year. President Biden at times feisty, ribbing Republicans who voted against the trillion-dollar infrastructure law, but now want to reap its benefits. We'll fund these projects, and I'll see you at the groundbreaking. Still, the president's overarching theme, an appeal for bipartisanship. The people sent us a clear message. Fighting for the sake of fighting, power for the sake of power, conflict for the sake of conflict gets us nowhere. President Biden urging Congress to act on unfinished business like police reform, with the parents of Tyree Nichols, who was killed by officers in Memphis in attendance, getting a standing ovation. The president including this poignant observation about policing and race. Most of us in here have never had to have the talk, the talk that brown and black parents have had to have with their children. He would also denounce political violence with a nod to Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, who survived a brutal home invasion. On foreign policy, the president making only a veiled reference to the Chinese spy balloon shot down last week. If China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. What was widely viewed as the unofficial kickoff to the president's re-election campaign, punctuated by this optimistic declaration. The people of this nation are strong. The state of the union is strong. The Republican response from new Arkansas Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, portraying the president as the head of a failed administration, hijacked by the radical left. President Biden and the Democrats have failed you, and it's time for a change. There was one other memorable and tense moment last night, even before President Biden arrived. Senator Mitt Romney delivering sharp words to George Santos as Romney passed by the freshman congressman who's facing calls to resign after lying about much of his life story. Romney was later asked about it. Listen. I don't know the exact words I said. He shouldn't have been there. He's a sick puppy. Uh, he, he shouldn't be. He shouldn't be there. Romney calling him a sick puppy. He also criticized Santos for standing along the aisle trying to shake hands with the president and senators, given he's facing ethics questions. Savannah. All right, Peter Alexander at the White House leading us off. Thank you. Let's turn to our senior Washington correspondent, Hallie Jackson. Well, it was a boisterous night. And sure was. It was. Yeah. So lots to talk about. Let, uh, let's do the politics. Okay. I mean, if this is a 2024 preview, if this is a test drive of the reelection message that President Biden might take on, what have we learned? That it's going to be a lot about the economy. It's going to be a lot about domestic issues. You heard him leaning into that. When do we hear about junk fees in states of the union, right? He talked about lowering the cost of insulin. Look where he is headed now, Savannah. He's on the road to Wisconsin, to Florida. The vice president is going to Georgia. If those sound like a couple of key early states, you are right, because we are rounding the corner into 2024 now. It's so interesting because, what was it, 75 percent domestic policy. Yes. And as you mentioned, 
bread and butter issues. Like, why do we have to pay those resort fees? It was like everything that's irritating <laughs> right. in the world. Like, how about that bothers your you? Why is your cable bill yeah, so exactly. expensive? Exactly. And that, listen, that's something that he is going to hope resonates with people as he starts to, presumably if he does announce this presidential run, as, as everybody anticipates, as he gets out there and talks about things like jobs you can do without college degrees. That is also a message that will sit well with voters in some of these key states where there are not um, a, a constituency for Democrats who have those degrees. It was interesting to see the dynamic on the House floor. We had some boisterous you, you, Republican voices. You called it spicy, and I loved it. It was spicy. I, it was a little mystery science theater where people are now just, you know, heckling and making commentary. And he's engaging. The speech, and this has been happening, and now he's engaging. And so we've got kind of a House of Parliament in the U.K. situation. Um, and I guess that's a debate for another day about whether that's a good development or a bad development. But the other thing is we saw Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, it's doing the school teacher thing a couple of times, saying, yeah. shushing his, his members, like, cut yes, it out. all but the fingers to the lips going, shh, shh, you can see some of it there as he's pursing his lips. He told his members earlier in the day, listen, cameras are on, mics are hot, like kind of watch what you say. He set the tone, he tried to at least, for trying to be respectful. He was asked, are you going to tear up any speeches? Remember after a former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi did uh, when former President Trump spoke and he said, no, like this is going to be sort of a respectful moment here. But you heard a lot of engagement and back and forth there. Not everybody liked it. Senator Mitt Romney said he's sort of sad about the loss of decorum, that decorum is going downhill. But let me tell you who did like some of that. Some Democratic allies of the president. I heard from one Democratic member who said he liked that the president did not back down from the fight and got in there and mixed it up. And then real quickly, we had Governor Sanders of Arkansas laying out that contrast and quite a different speech and potentially, I guess, a, a preview of what some Republican themes might be. That's exactly right. And two big ones for me that stood out from her speech, leaning into those so-called culture war issues. Boy, did she go after what she and some conservatives see as sort of wokeism on the left, trying to draw the line between what she described as normal and crazy. And then there's something else, which was the generational piece of it. She was extremely explicit that she is literally half the age of the president of the United States. Look at somebody like Ron DeSantis. He's only 44, right? The governor of Florida, who is widely expected to be considered a considering a presidential run. The, the idea of is it time for a new generation? Generation of leadership, maybe something we'll hear a lot about over the next couple of years. All right, Hallie Jackson, nice to be with you. Thank you so much. Hodo, send it to you. All right, thank you, Savannah. Of course, another major story this morning the race against time in southern Turkey and Syria. Rescue teams are searching for the trapped and the injured. This is two days after one of the region's most powerful earthquakes in a century. And while there are remarkable stories of survival, they're emerging, and, and an already unthinkable death toll continues to rise. NBC's Kelly Kobiea is at one of the ancient cities in Turkey that was leveled by the quake. Hey, Kelly, good morning. Good morning to you, Hori. Yeah, we're in Pazarchuk. This is very close to the epicenter, just north of it, in fact. And it's one of the hardest hit parts of Turkey. And I'll just show you what we've seen as we've driven in. This is a house, and you can see the entire kitchen has just crumpled down onto the street. There's a, a microwave back there. You can see the stove is just... Uh, folded over right here. There's twisted rebar, uh, concrete. And this is the kind of debris that rescuers are having to dig through. Dangerous debris. But this morning, they're still finding survivors. This morning, a sliver of light amid the darkness. A family of six pulled alive from the rubble in northern Syria. The crowd joyfully cheering, God is great, as a little girl is carried to an ambulance. This boy's delight shining through as he's pulled from the debris. Working through the night, more than 2,000 rescue workers and troops frantically searching for survivors. 
this newborn baby found alive, although its mother didn't survive Sunday's massive quake. International help still arriving, including teams from the U.S. USAID Administrator Samantha Powers saying, The United States is committed to supporting the recovery effort from this earthquake in an urgent manner. The U.S. sending rescuers, search dogs and supplies. A team from Israel already at work. The need for help is staggering. This is the first time search and rescue crews have been able to make it to this neighborhood. And the neighbors believe a mother and her two sons were trapped in that building. They're not sure if they're alive. The search and rescue teams are trying to find them, but it doesn't look good. This man lives next door, but says he wasn't home when the earthquake struck. By a miracle, he tells me he was out of the building getting a cup of tea. He and his family are now living in their car, but all are alive. More than 50 hours after the quake, scenes of apocalyptic devastation. These powerful satellite images show the scene before and after. And there is mounting despair in the region. In Syria, access remains a huge challenge. Humanitarian groups calling for desperately needed aid. Hospitals in the war-torn region now completely overrun. In Turkey, where it's winter, survivors huddling for warmth near a fire waiting for news of those still trapped. This survivor saying, may God help us. And as crews continue to reach places like these for the first time, that death toll will continue to rise. It now tops 11,200. But Hoda, more than 8,000 people have been rescued. And that number for now continues to rise as well. We keep our eyes on those rescues, too. Kelly Kobiea in Turkey. Kelly, thank you so much. (laughs) Mr. Roker, how about a check of the weather? All right. Well, what's interesting, we've got right now an interesting situation. There's a lot of fog out there, and temperatures in the northeast are close to freezing. And so there's areas of black ice stretching interior sections of New York, Long Island, all the way up into New England. So we just have to watch out for that. Now, we also have uh, 7 million people under flood watches or winter storm watches, winter weather advisories starting to get themselves together. You can already see showers and thunderstorms making their way up along this line as this pushes in. We are going to be looking at a risk of severe weather today from New Orleans, Lake Charles, up into Memphis, Greenwood, Shreveport, Jackson, Mississippi. Storm system will be pushing up out of the lower Mississippi River Valley. Flood threats for parts of Missouri and Arkansas that continues tomorrow with rain making its way and snow into the Midwest and parts of Maine and showers tracking through the Northeast. Could see some flooding, especially northern Arkansas into Missouri, upwards of four inches of rain. Snowfall amounts lighter in New England, but as we get into parts of Wisconsin and on into parts of Michigan, we could see locally six to eight inches of snow. And that is your latest weather. Guys. All right, Mr. Roker, thank you. Just ahead here, some new drama at the Alec Murdoch double murder trial. Evidence presented in court for the first time pointing to a possible motive. We're going to have a live report from the courthouse. And then our countdown to the Super Bowl, the history-making duel with Texas ties between the starting quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts, how their hometowns are celebrating them ahead of the big game on Sunday. But first, this is Today on NBC. Hi, everyone. I'm Jenna Bush Hager from Today with Hoda and Jenna and the Read with Jenna Book Club. 
There's nothing I love more than sharing my favorite reads with all of you, except maybe talking to the exceptional authors behind these stories. And that's what I'll be doing on my podcast, Read with Jenna. I'll be introducing you to some of my favorite writers. These conversations will leave you feeling inspired and entertained. To start listening, just search Read with Jenna wherever you get your podcasts. back 7 30 and that beautiful look at the u.s capitol uh we are showing you that shot because that is where savannah is starting her day and where she spent her evening too hey sg sun's coming up and maybe it's because i didn't get much sleep but guys i just want to correct the record i'm in washington that's what we do here yeah i know that lakers colors are purple and gold yes you do know that. and i am actually wearing purple yes and you are wearing gold <laughs> yes yes we, and i don't know why i said blue you, it just kind of blurted out that's well, what I happens think it's probably because you were up until at yeah. least midnight yeah maybe but I'm, i apologize mistake. lakers nation don't at me i know it's purple <laughs> and gold and, and hoda and i are, are we're dressed we got in your you. honor all we're in is, sync we're in sync All right, let's get it. I'm so glad. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Let's get to the 730 headlines this morning. We're going to start with the latest on that Chinese spy balloon that the U.S. shot down over the weekend. Navy officials are now releasing new images showing the recovery of some remnants of that balloon off the coast of South Carolina. We've also learned more this morning about U.S. efforts to reach out to the Chinese after the downing of the balloon. Officials have revealed that the Chinese actually refused a request for a phone call between Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the Chinese Minister of National Defense. The aim of that call was to open up dialogue between the two countries. A United Airlines flight was forced to return to San Diego yesterday after a battery pack erupted in flames in the cabin. The plane had just taken off for Newark when that emergency unfolded. The airline says the battery pack belonged to a customer. Crew members quickly contained the device to keep the fire from spreading. And although seven people reported being hurt, four were taken to the hospital where they were treated for smoke inhalation. Now to a dramatic rescue in Iowa after a Jeep fell through an icy lake. Check this out. Five bystanders, including a 17-year-old, jumped into action to pull the 83-year-old driver and a dog out of the vehicle. The driver was taken to the hospital. Both he and the dog are said to be doing well this morning. Good to hear that. All right, now let's move to developments at the closely watched Alec Murdoch trial. Yeah, for the first time, the jury is hearing detailed testimony of Murdoch's alleged financial crimes being used by prosecutors as a possible motive for the murders of his wife and son. NBC's Katie Beck is from that courthouse in Walterboro, South Carolina, for us once again. Katie, good morning. Good morning, Craig. As you know, prosecutors fought hard to get the evidence admitted to trial. But after hearing the detailed testimony yesterday, some are wondering whether the added layer of complexity will help or hurt their case. Alec Murdoch emotional Tuesday as his longtime family friend and colleague Ronnie Crosby recounted the murder scene. That area in that room Well, we could see him. It was so bad. Crosby, who rushed to the Murdoch home the night of the murder shortly after hearing the news, was also the third witness to confirm Alec Murdoch's voice in this video. Prosecutors suggesting the video found on Paul Murdoch's phone and taken minutes before he and his mother Maggie were murdered, places Alec at the scene. How sure are you 
I'm 100% sure. A forensic expert also took the stand, testifying she found gunshot residue on Murdoch's shirt, shorts, and raincoat, noting that the shirt smelled freshly laundered. If a recently fired firearm was wrapped up, wrapped up inside that jacket, would that be consistent with your findings? There is a possibility of that, yes, sir. Also on Tuesday, prosecutors began presenting evidence of Alec Murdoch's alleged financial crimes, including testimony from the CFO of Murdoch's law firm, Jeannie Seckinger. I think Alec um, was successful more off, not from his work ethic, but from his ability to establish relationships and to, to manipulate people. So he did it through the article. Basically. On the day of the murder, Seckinger said she confronted Murdoch about nearly $800,000 of missing fees. My concern was that he had stolen the fees. She said Murdoch assured her the money was in a trust. Prosecutors are arguing that Murdoch killed his wife and son to distract from his suspected financial troubles. But some legal experts believe the detailed financial information may overload a jury already processing weeks of testimony. How do you think the jury is responding to this evidence? I think the jury is bored <laughs> to tears. And with this added financial testimony, attorneys are now saying this trial could extend another two weeks. Craig? All right, Katie Beckforce there in South Carolina. Katie, thank you. Now we're joined by NBC's senior legal correspondent, Laura Jarrett's been all over this. Hey, Laura. And Laura, so let me, let's start with these two witnesses who were called yesterday, the CFO of the firm and also one of the partners at the firm who are starting to present this evidence of the financial misdeeds. How far did that testimony go yesterday? How significant was that? The CFO's testimony, she's the CFO of this, of this prior law firm that he belonged to. I think that was some of the more damning testimony because she's painting a portrait of someone who cannot be trusted. Mm -hmm. And that's key to the prosecution's case. It's why you saw the prosecution fight so hard to get this evidence in. It's yeah. why you saw the defense team try to keep it out unsuccessfully. And also her body language is so interesting. Mm -hmm. She's turning directly to the jury. She's talking to them. She's making direct eye contact. The line of questions questioning was far more clear and concise than I think we've previously seen. And she's making an essential connection for them on the timing that she not only uncovered this years long fraud, yeah. but she confronted him about it. And then the murders happened soon after. The financial misdeeds are one thing, but like physical evidence is another. And there was one witness who talked about gunshot residue yeah. on his hands, on his shorts. I mean, that evidence in and of itself seems super damning. It's certainly uh, something they would have hoped to keep out. But also the defense has an opportunity here to say, look, these people owned a lot of guns. They were familiar with guns. We know that uh. they were using them both before and after the killings. That isn't necessarily, again, fatal to the defense because just being around him doesn't necessarily mean he was the one who actually pulled the trigger in this case. But also, remember, the prosecution did a really nice job running out the clock yesterday yeah. because the jury went home after hearing that he had gunshot residue on his uh -huh. shirts, his shorts, his seatbelt. Yep. They didn't hear a peep from the cross-examination. So that's all they were left with yesterday. Going back to the to the financial crimes for a moment here. Um, I want to get your take on, on the jury. If, because this is a question that's been outstanding from the very beginning. If he stole all of this money, millions of dollars, there has yet to, to be an explanation offered as to where that money went. Where is the money? Would a juror even care about that or, or not? Juries do not like unanswered questions. They wanted to have this sort of make sense for them. I don't know if we'll actually ever hear the prosecution offer a, a concise answer to that. We haven't heard it in openings yet. We know that at least part of the story here, at least from what we've heard so far, 
is that perhaps he was squirreling away some of this money because they were also facing a totally unrelated uh, civil suit related to a boat crash involving his son. Mm. And so to the extent that maybe perhaps he was hiding funds for that, that could be part of it. But it's one of the unanswered questions. Mm -hmm. All right, Laura Jarrett. Laura, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, is the five second rule really a thing? What about what about egg yolks? Are, Are they bad for you? Dr. Torres is going to drop some truth bombs on popular health myths. But first, the Texas connection between the quarterbacks. They're set to make history at the Super Bowl. NBC's Morgan Chesky's on that one. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Hoda, good morning. And long before the Sunday highlights, Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts became stars under these Friday night lights. Coming up, my former coaches and teammates say their success is absolutely no surprise. Stick around. We're back, 742 Super Bowl 57, just four days away. Can you feel it, guys? Yes. Mm-hmm. And no matter who wins on Sunday, go Eagles, history will be made. <laughs> I like That's that, right. SG. I That's like that. Right. Uh, go Chiefs. <laughs> but for the first time, the game will be featuring two starting black quarterbacks, Chiefs star Patrick Mahomes and, of course, the Eagles star Jalen Hurts. They're also the first to face off from the state of Texas. So naturally, since it is Texas, we sent NBC's Morgan Chesky to visit both of their home towns. Morgan, good morning. There are bragging rights at stake. Oh, some serious bragging rights. Good morning, guys. And it kind of feels like Friday Night Lights season 20 here, right? You got two guys who grew, became stars on fields just like this one, now about to play for a Super Bowl ring. And I got to tell you, for the two communities who watch these guys grow up and where football is king, this matchup doesn't get any better. On Sundays, they play either the hero or villain. But rarely do two superstar quarterbacks share an origin story. For Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts, their superpowers came long before Kansas City or Philadelphia. We were two quarterbacks from Texas, which I take a lot of great pride in. He's been really good in his career. Um, I have a lot of respect for him, him being a Texas guy. This Super Bowl, pitting Mahomes' White House Wildcats in East Texas against Hurts' Channel View Falcons near Houston, where Jalen grew up. I guess when your dad's a Texas high school football coach, this is kind of what daycare looks like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you just come, go have fun, go run around. You know, and they would go out and try to, you know, imitate the older kids and do the drills and things. Dedication, the elder Hertz says, soon led to domination. Jalen's high school years putting Channel View on the map. He's always trying to reach the ceiling. That's what he's built on. Best friend Trey Tut remembers a high school game they were losing. That changed everything. So the second half starts. I kid you not. Jalen had nine touchdowns in that game. After that moment right there, I was like, that's that's a guy. That's a guy right there. You can't score nine touchdowns in one game by yourself. At White House High School, deep in Dallas Cowboy territory, a Chiefs jersey sits front and center. There's our White House Wildcat right there. Former head coach Adam Cook remembers a player beloved by teammates. Just as quick with a smile as a no-look pass. I feel like I hit the lottery in getting to coach Patrick Mahomes in high school, no doubt. So do high school teammates who say the moment was never too big for Mahomes. He wasn't ever trying to, you know, be too good or too great. It just came natural. Yeah, you feed off his energy, which is just calm, and you know he's going to go make a play too. And as for that AFC championship game, when number 15 played through a brutal ankle injury, he hobbles to the sideline. No one here was surprised. 
Yeah, I mean, we down here, we call that East Texas toughness, you know. And for us, I mean, it gives you almost chills watching it. Rest assured, come Super Bowl kickoff, both White House and Channelview will be watching, hoping their superheroes will bring home a championship. No doubt about it. We're going for Patrick Mahomes. The one thing I can guarantee is a black quarterback from the state of Texas will win the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's one heck of a guarantee, right? And another stat that jumps out at me, four of the last six Super Bowl winning quarterbacks have actually hailed from Texas going back, coded to Drew Brees. And you have Nick Foles, who led the Eagles to their last Super Bowls. Of course, you had Patrick Mahomes winning one, then Matthew Stafford from here in Dallas. Hertz could make that number five. Time will tell. But either way, I mean, everyone's gearing up for one heck of a football game here. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Morgan. Thank great. you. Texas is the spot, man. Isn't it? Well, <laughs> I mean, your pedigree. It is a, it is a religion in, yeah. the, in the Lone Star yeah. State, so it doesn't surprise. It is. All right. Mr. Roker, what are we looking at, Well, sir? they play some hot nights there in football. We've had some warmer-than-average nights for the month of January this year. I mean, much above average overnight lows in the Midwest and the Northeast, especially as you make your way from Minneapolis, Boston. I mean, look at these temperatures. Some of these folks in red have the warmest January records on night, uh, warmest January night records, and the top three warmest in the areas in yellow. And, in fact, you can see all the way up to Los Vegas, 35 fewer nights since 1970 of temperatures below freezing. New York, 14 fewer. New Orleans, 16 fewer. And we've got more warm nights and days coming. Chicago today, you're going to be 43 degrees, 12 degrees above average. Charlotte, 71. That's 16 degrees above average. As we make our way east tomorrow, Boston, you're going to be near 50. Philly, 57. We're looking at 62 in Lexington. And you can see those temperatures warm up. New York City, we may see 60 on Friday, but down to 46 by Sunday. Kansas City, you'll warm up Friday, 39, up to 57 on Sunday. And that is your latest weather. All right, Al, thank you so much. Uh, Still ahead, the rise of the Pink Ladies. We've got a brand new look, the big Grease prequel series. But first, these messages. 